Hey everybody, welcome to Open Door Philosophy, a podcast or a current philosophy major, that's me and his former high school philosophy teacher, that's me, unpack a variety of big philosophical concepts in an understandable way, all towards the purpose of living a good life. Welcome to episode 13 on the life and ideas of Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. Did I pronounce that right? You did. Awesome. Yes. So, last episode, you were about to embark on your grand journey to Poland and Copenhagen. How was that? Oh, man. Let me tell you. You, you know, we, we went to Poland because my brother and sister-in-law lived there. And it had been some years since mom had seen her son. So, uh, we are mom's travel companions these days. And so, mom wanted to see her boy. So, off to Poland we went. So, it was, uh, but I didn't know much about Poland as far as a, a country to visit. I was delighted. Poland is, is a beautiful country, beautiful people. And we uh, we started in the north up on the Baltic and Gdansk and Gdynia. And then we traveled south and uh, went to all the way all the way down south to, to the Slovakian border uh, to a little mountain town called Zakopane and uh, spent some time in Krakow. But it's a, it's a beautiful country. And if a person is just ever wanting to spend a little time in Europe. Poland's a great place to do it. That sounds really fun. I was I was wondering this when when you were leaving if you were having to pack your suitcase full of, you know, big winter fluffy coats, but I don't I don't <laughs> know if that's accurate. No, it was mild, although my my brother-in-law said like the warm weather had just arrived. Uh, apparently this was one of Poland's coldest winters they have had in many <laughs> my goodness. many years. And it gets very cold up there. You know, if you look at it on the map and the latitude, it is very cold. And they love up there in the north where they love they love the water. They love the Baltic. Really? And and I can see why the summer season is so short. You know, it was like 73 degrees and the beaches were packed and people were (laughs) in the water. And, you know, down here in Texas, I mean, you know, if it's not 90 degrees or higher, we're like, eh, it's not really a good beach day. Certainly a difference there in perspective, but it was really wonderful. I, I, I can see why people from, from that part of the world, you know, just bask in the sun because, because the season is so short. <laughs> How is the, um, asking you so many questions, you can edit That's these good. out if you want to, but. Um, Welcome to our travel podcast, ladies and <laughs> gentlemen. Uh, <laughs> How is the, I remember, I forget if we were talking about this when we were recording last week, but. How is the COVID situation there? Oh, so that was interesting too. When we got to the airport in Houston to leave, when they asked us what our purpose for travel was, we said vacation. And they're like, oh no, I'm sorry, you can't go. You can't get on the plane. We're like, what? They're like, oh wait, we're going to see our brother. And they're like, oh, so you have family over there. We're like, yes. <laughs> and so we had, to ha- we, call- we had to call brother and sister-in-law for them to send us pictures of proof of residence in oh Poland <laughs> before they would give us our boarding passes. Because wow. at that point you could not travel to Europe unless it, you could, you couldn't travel there for leisure for vacation. Wow. So we had just said the wrong thing, but still we had to show proof of, uh, of that. And then about halfway through the trip, I actually read on the news that the EU had lifted that ban. <laughs> so you can now travel to EU countries for leisure but when we were coming back, also, we had to, and we weren't aware of this, but when we were checking in 
to fly home, we had to provide a negative COVID test, even though we were all vaccinated and had our vaccination cards. But, you know, as far as like the experience of it, I mean, in Poland and in Copenhagen, no one was wearing masks outdoors. Poland, you walk inside a store, though, you put your mask on like no one balked at that. It was so habitual. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could just tell. Well, listen, you've been uh, you've been keeping an eye on Houston while I've been gone. So so how's life in Andrew's world? I just noticed this a few weeks ago, but I think every time I talk about the weather. So uh, here's a weather update. Welcome <laughs> <laughs> uh, to our weather podcast. <laughs> it's been really hot in, in Houston. So I've been confined indoors, luckily, for the for the most part since the last episode. I've been, of course, still studying relentlessly. I finally, just finally gotten my score up to where about I want it. So I have about a month to iron that out. So I'm very happy with that. Good. And then something exciting relating to the philosophy world is I'm going to be, I guess it's kind of like TAing for a intro to philosophy class. Oh, that's very cool. Say more about that. Yeah. So next semester, it's just going to be a... I don't really know how to describe it. I think we're just going to be reading a bunch of, you know, a bunch of the famous philosophers. And I think the the class is, I'm, I'm not sure if it's called this or if this is the goal or whatever, but it's basically like philosophy 101, philosophy is a way of life. So it's going to be something kind of similar to our goal of the podcast, I think. Something similar, I, I, I'm pretty sure. So I'm super excited about that. About once a week, we're going to be breaking off into small groups of about 10. And uh, we're going to be just having a a small little discussion. So I'm really, 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 really excited about that. Are you in charge of one of those small groups? Yeah. So I'm going to be be leading one of those. Hopefully, we'll have some good conversations and I'll be able to learn just as much as everybody else. But yeah, we're going to be covering some some of my favorites like Plato and Aristotle and going to be covering some uh, unknown subjects to me too. So I'm thrilled. I think we're covering Augustine for, for a little part of it too. So I think we were talking about him a few weeks ago. So I'm, yeah. I am excited about that too. Oh man, don't, don't let the power and authority go to your head. <laughs> yeah, I need, I need to get some tips about how, how to do this from you. Uh, you, you need to read your Marcus Aurelius, really. <laughs> uh, yeah, and that sounds like uh, that might provide some good fodder for our podcast as well. Yeah, that's going to be really fun. We'll, we'll definitely have to talk. I'll, I'll keep everybody updated on that. All right, so Mr. Parsons, uh, one of your highlights of your trip I've heard was the stop in Copenhagen, which was the quote-unquote stomping grounds for for Kierkegaard, who's the the topic of this week's episode. So I figured kind of in in the theme of that, if that's the right word, do you want to tell us a little bit about him? Yeah, it seems only appropriate to do an episode on on Soren Kierkegaard here now that I've I've gone to uh, to his city. And it really was his city. He hardly ever left it in his entire life. He left for about one year to go to university in Germany. That was really it. Uh, So he spent his entire life in Copenhagen which was not a very large city at the time. So let's get into that. So Kierkegaard lived from 1833 to 1855. So he wasn't terribly old when he died. He was 42. Although he thought that he would not live past the age of 33, but we'll get that to that later. So this is the time that he lived in Copenhagen. It was early to mid-19th century. 
So Copenhagen as a city was as large as most European cities at the time, but all that to say is it wasn't terribly large. It certainly wasn't large by today's standards. In fact, the cemetery that he's buried in was just opened in the mid-1800s because too many bodies were piling up in Copenhagen. They needed Mm -hmm. to build a new cemetery. So the one that he's buried in was technically outside of the city at that time. But when we were there, I mean, it it was like less than a mile walk to get to it. And we were kind of in the middle of city center. So, you know, he spent his entire life in the city of of Copenhagen. He was a very intense individual, um, (laughs) as we'll see as we go through all of this, through his, his life and his works. He was known for uh, for walking, and this is one of the reasons I I wanted to go to Copenhagen so so badly is that you know once we found out we we're going to Poland, like the north of Poland, I mean it was it was literally a forty minute flight from Gdynia to Copenhagen. So I was like, we I told Kirsten like we we have to go to Copenhagen. I've got to see all the Kierkegaard sites. Uh, so so he was he was really well known for walking. In fact, he was kind of lampooned for for walking so much. He was always out and about in the city with his cane and his top hat and his gloves. And he was walking all the time. So here's a quote from him. He says, above all, do not lose your desire to walk. Every day I walk myself into a state of well-being and walk away from every illness. I have walked myself into my best thoughts. And I know of no thought so burdensome that one cannot walk away from it. So when he wasn't writing, he was walking. So in that quote, you know, he says he knows of no thought so burdensome that he cannot walk away from. Kierkegaard did have a fairly tragic life. Some of that was self-inflicted. However, he would, I mean, by today's standards, we would say that he was clinically depressed, had a great degree of anxiety. He writes about that from an existentialist point of view, but but he kind of had good reason for this. Uh, By the time he was 25, Five of his six siblings had died, and both his mother and father were dead as well. Jeez. So by the time he is 25, you know, he, he has one sibling. And this is because he believed that, or rather his dad believed that there was this family curse on them. And like I said earlier, you know, Kierkegaard did not believe he would live past the age of 33. I can't remember why he came up with that particular number, but his father cursed. <laughs> well, his father was very upset at one point uh, about their um, financial situation. And uh, this is very, uh, this may have even been before Kierkegaard was born. And apparently his father went up on top of a hill and cursed God for it. And mm. and because he had done this, his, his father was very devout. But because he had done this, his father felt like the family kind of had a curse because he had, uh, that he had done this. And, you know, it, it sort of seems that at least from Kierkegaard's perspective with his father and his mother and five of his six siblings dying, it it seemed to him that this curse was, was real. So he, he was always very mindful of death and, uh, and that it was coming for him. That's, that's kind of interesting. I remember, I don't know how accurate this is because I've never, I've never really delved into Kierkegaard, but from what I remember, I think Kierkegaard writes a little about Greek tragedy a little bit. I'm in one of his books or something. And I think that he discusses or he critiques Aristotle's love of Sophocles' Oedipus Rex because Oedipus seems to have this huge curse or stain on him. And I think he criticizes that. Could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure 
from what I remember, he criticizes him for something like it's not Oedipus's fault because it's not his own sin. Like it's it's more of a sin that's inherited through his family. It's not really Oedipus's fault. I didn't know this about Kierkegaard, but I'm wondering if it has any connection to that. That certainly could. And to like kind of just continue the tragedy, if you will, one of the things he's very well known for is his failed romance with, with a girl by the name of uh, Regine Schlegel. I think I'm saying that, that correctly. He, he had a very tortured love life. Again, a lot of it was self-inflicted. Uh, about the age of 26 or so, he was engaged to Regine. He was engaged to her for about a year, and then he broke, he broke off the engagement for a number of reasons. One, sort of his depressive nature. Uh, he, was, he was always just very intensely concerned about everything. And then uh, also he, he, he was and wanted to be a writer. He was bound to be a, a writer. He didn't think that a writer and, and a husband was, was the type of balanced life that he could manage. And that was probably true, to be honest, just how he worked. But after he broke off the engagement, by the way, through a letter, <laughs> like oh this is gosh. the equivalent of, of breaking off an engagement via text or something like that. But all throughout the rest of his life, he would see her on the streets because Copenhagen was small. They would see each other at church. He, he would send her correspondence. She would actually reply sometimes. <laughs> he just kind of never left her alone. It, the engagement ring he took back from her. I don't know if he took it from her. She may have given it to him. But either way, he ends up with the ring. He has it refashioned, the diamonds in the shape of a crucifix. And he wears the ring for the rest of his life. He writes about love and her a lot in a lot of his books. And then when he dies, it was discovered that he left his estate to her as well. Oh, my gosh. Wow. So it's a it's a real... I mean, if you like tragic romances, yeah. <laughs> this is kind of one of them. And Regina did marry after this. And I can only imagine what, what her husband's uh, response <laughs> to all of this attention from Kierkegaard must have been like. That's very interesting. Kind of, kind of goes with these, you know, the theme of the 17th and 18th century philosophers who, who can never find love like, uh, like Nietzsche and um, Hobbes and Descartes and Kant, even all of these people are unmarried, uh, but this seems certainly extremely tragic compared to all of them. It was. I mean, like if you're not into Kierkegaard's philosophy, just biographically, he's a very interesting person. And m- much has been written about his, his, uh, his romance or lack of it. But being, saying all that, going back to one of the reasons he broke off his romance, if he wasn't walking, he was writing. And he, he wrote over... 7,000 pages of journal entries. Oh my gosh, wow. And of course, one of the main ways that people communicated back then was letters. So he wrote, I don't know how many letters, tons of letters. But then in his professional writing career, which which only lasted about 12 years from from 1843 to 55, he, he wrote 33 books in 12 years. So he was a prolific writer. He was an intense writer. I do wonder how all that would have shaken out if he had had a, an editor. (laughs) It might not have been 33 books, but man, he cranked out the books. Then he died very suddenly when he was 42. He was walking through the streets of Copenhagen, as he did, and just fell down on the the street. And he was uh, taken to hospital and lived a few days longer and died. 
So he likely had a, a stroke. But anyway, that is that is the life of Kierkegaard. As far as his death goes, it was, of course, just like his life, very controversial. We'll get into this, but Kierkegaard was a fierce critic of the Copenhagen National Church, which was Lutheranism at the time. And he made many enemies in the clergy, <laughs> the intellectual elite, uh, yet he had a big following from, from lots of people. And so well, I mentioned the, the cemetery he was buried in was technically outside of the city. There's a reason he was buried there because that was a cemetery for poor of society. Um, and he wasn't given a burial inside the city. However, he was, uh, he was granted a Christian burial. His uh, dean of the cemetery gave him a Christian burial, even though many people felt he, it wasn't deserved. And even at the graveside, his nephew peeked over the wall of the cemetery and started yelling that his Christian burial was a disgrace uh, because of the things that he had written about the church. So like the intellectual elite and the church elite and those people really didn't attend his funeral, which was the National Cathedral. But it was packed full of, of people, students, poor people, people that he had uh, engaged with in his walks, his many walks, but, uh, but not so much the intellectual elite. So, so there's, the, uh, <laughs> there's the life and death of Kierkegaard. It even ends in controversy. That's quite a life. I mean, compared to other people, I feel like he's just definitely out there. What I think of when I think of Kierkegaard is existentialism, which... I don't know if that's accurate. I don't know if that's what, if he just kind of coined it and moved on or if that's what he spent his life kind of delving into. But yeah, I think when I think of Kierkegaard, I think he's the father of existentialism. This is a one of our more popular kind of philosophies that I think more people kind of know, but I think we should talk about it for a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. He He's considered the father of, of existentialism, even though the term didn't exist at the time. I think it was Jean-Paul Sartre, actually, who coined the term, yeah. which would have been during World War II. But, you know, we say, you know, a couple episodes, we, we talked about Nietzsche. He's considered an existentialist. And uh, Kierkegaard is considered the father, like we said, of, of existentialism. But he would not have known to call himself that. So, you know, it does that can take us down another road and we should probably do an entire episode just on existentialism as a, as a way of living or as a philosophy. Mm -hmm. But the things that, that he wrote about and embodied that are existentialist in nature would be themes like the, the issue of free will, the fact that we have free will, the importance of passion and inwardness in terms of living, the, uh, the, the emphasis on the individual and, and the, how the individual interacts with the world. Certainly the ideas of like alienation, anxiety, Camus will, of course, talk about uh, absurdism. All those kind of go together in a way about the fact that existence is somewhat filled with anxiety. <laughs> that comes from a number of, of areas. And a big emphasis on the idea of authenticity, being true to one's self, uh, are all big themes that, that Kierkegaard talks about. And those are very common in existentialism, which is why he's identified as, as the father of it. Because no one really talked about that, uh, talked about themselves in such an inward way before Kierkegaard. I have heard said that St. Augustine, his, his confessions 
is kind of like a pre-existentialism because that's a very inward text. But Kierkegaard takes it to the, to the next level and then a number of levels past that, as, as we see from his 7,000 pages of, of journal writing. Yeah, I, that's that still blows me away. I, it's hard for me to even fill up a page in a week. Um, <laughs> yeah, so when I think of existentialism, I think, like you mentioned, I think it, the way that I see it at least is a, a branch off of what Sartre or Sartre, how he developed it, but I guess it really originated with with Kierkegaard. So the way that I see existentialism, tell me if I'm wrong, please jump in, or if Kierkegaard kind of disagreed with this. Sartre, he coined this term, but I think it's the best description of existentialism. It's like existence is before essence. I don't know if Kierkegaard would agree with this, but when we come into this world, we're just, we exist. And then as we go through our life, um, we become who we are by our own free will, our free choices. So existence is coming before your essence. You come into the world and then you become who you are as time goes on. This is kind of different from a a lot of past philosophers. Let's go back to Aristotle, my favorite. He's, He's thinking that essence is preceding your existence. So He's thinking that, you know, you, you do have a purpose in your life that is kind of granted to you before before you're even born, that just comes with you being a human being, and that essence is locked into all humans, every single one. And for you to be good, you need to follow this. For you to be good and happy, really, you have to be following this very... You have to be following your essence. You have to be kind of living finding that through. So your essence is very much proceeding, but influencing your own existence. Is is that kind of right, Mr. Parsons? Um, Kierkegaard would kind of say that the existence is proceeding the essence? Yeah. I mean, this is, this is a very typical existentialist view. Sartre, uh, of course, probably the most famous of the existentialist, if not maybe Camus. The development of existentialism as a, as a school, if you will, doesn't really... F- formalize until about about World War II. But we look backwards to some of these other people like Kierkegaard and Nietzsche, and we see this idea of existence precedes essence. So the existentialists believe that we bring ourselves into being. By every action that we do, we are bringing ourselves into who we are. Who we are is what we do. There's no essence to us that is outside of what we do. And so, you know, when, when Nietzsche says something like, become who you are, you know, we talked about that a few episodes ago with Carson. Kierkegaard echoes very similar things. The importance of not following the crowd, the importance of being an individual and the emphasis on the individual can only bring yourself into who you are. If you're just following the herd, if you're just following the masses, then you're being inauthentic you're not being who you are. It, yeah. It's be- yeah. So, so it's, it's kind of best described through his involvement with Christianity and, and with the church in his, in his Copenhagen. Uh, a lot of people will associate, and this is due to writers like Sartre and Camus. A lot of people these days will associate atheism with existentialism. 
Mm-hmm. But I always like to point out that there is a, a thread, if you will, of existentialism that we would call theistic existentialism. 20th century Paul Tillich is a good example of a theistic existentialist. Uh, Kierkegaard is certainly a theistic <laughs> existentialist. You know, Nietzsche and, and Sartre, those guys were atheists. Kierkegaard, without question, is a Christian. In fact, he felt like people weren't Christian enough. And uh, and this was part of his intensity that I talked about. This is one of his main projects in life. Sartre and, and Nietzsche and Simone de Beauvoir and, and some of those other existentialists talk about becoming who you are through the things that you do. For Kierkegaard, the thing that you do is being a Christian. I, I have a question here. So is the idea kind of in Kierkegaard's mind that you have your own choices in the world, but is it like the right choice or is it the choice that will make people happiest is to be Christian or is it something like humans are kind of like what role is Christianity playing in a life that is truly kind of free with no outside forces? Does that make sense? Outside forces kind of hitting onto it. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, how can you be authentic if you're subscribing to a faith? Right. Right. No, I mean, that's a great question. So, so, so let me, let me put it this way. I'll just talk about his, uh, his sort of relationship with, with the church. We got to understand some of the context of his time period in Copenhagen at the time. Like I said, the state religion was, was Lutheran. When you're baptized, that is your Danish citizenship. Huh? Right. So the church, was that embedded in life. Baptism was your citizenship. So people were born into being a Christian. Cool. And so that really bothered Kierkegaard because he was like, how can you have membership in something if you're just born into it? In other words, you didn't choose. You did not make the choice to be a Christian. You just are a Christian. And what he saw observed in society really bothered him is that People took this for granted, right? This is where he felt like, you know, he really wanted to redefine what it meant to be a Christian. He accused Christians uh, of being just blatantly uh, hypocritical, that their belief was totally empty, that it was uh, being a member of the church in Copenhagen was like being a member of a social club, which had nothing to do with being a Christian that most Christians displayed no passion for their faith at all, that it was one, just one big social club. And the thing that really bothered him is he saw, saw this as like herd mentality, right? Everyone's just being sheep and just following the crowd that you weren't a Christian because you're born into it. So, so it's irrelevant to Kierkegaard that other Christians existed. This is where we get to the individual, the introspective inwardness aspect of him. It's completely irrelevant to Kierkegaard that other Christians existed. One is ultimately a Christian all by oneself. One cannot tell if someone else is Christian because that's outward. If you and I are having a conversation and Andrew, you're like, oh yes, I'm a Christian and I pray and and I'm going to pray right now, you know, and I observe you pray. And uh, like, that's you showing me the signs that you're a Christian, but I can't know that you're a Christian. Mm. All of that stuff you're talking about is outward. A person is only a Christian to themselves. And so this is what bothered him about the whole herd mentality is like, this is the way that you're a Christian. 
and everyone was fine with that. In fact, one of his quotes, he, uh, you know, he says that piety consisted of going to communion once a year. I saw this and laughed. You know, he's just so critical of society. He's like, oh, so this is what Christianity is? Uh, every year, once a year at Christmas, we all go to church. And, and that was the herd mentality. Now, another thing to keep in mind is he was a member of what we would call the bourgeoisie. So his, his family came from merchant money, which Copenhagen was very involved with, of course. And so he was in and around the upper echelons of society. You know, this is another thing that he was critical of. He felt like this membership to the bourgeois class also held him and others back from being authentic because you saw what so-and-so was doing or wearing or what kind of house they're living in or the way that they were acting in society. And everyone just starts mimicking each other. And, and all of that just, just bothered him. So, so, so a big issue for him, I guess to kind of circle back, a big issue for him is, is inwardness and passion. And, uh, and we can only, you can only attain that by being authentic. And he explains all of that through, the vehicle of Christianity. That makes sense. That that clarifies, I think, my confusion. So the emphasis that he's kind of placing on is that each person needs to freely kind of choose and find their own faith. Is that kind of right? Because that's going to be a lot more powerful to an individual or it's going to be, yeah, they're going to not take it for granted like others would, or it's going to be kind of a deeper tie yeah, absolutely. One one of the one of the knocks that uh, that existentialism receives, Simone de Beauvoir, who was the partner life partner of of Jean Paul Sartre, she was also an existentialist. She tries to clarify this in her books, uh, The Ethics of Authenticity. One of the questions is like, well, okay, sure, authenticity and choice is cool, but like, what's the moral? Like, how do we make a, a morally good decision? You know, in an ethical in an existentialist frame. And for the existentialists and for, and for Kierkegaard, uh, the choice is the ethic. I see. Hmm. And then we have to get into like the importance of choice and how much choice we really have and what is, what is truth and, and things like that. But importance of any decision is the choice itself. That's the ethic. Let me circle back to Sartre, actually, and use an example from his speech, Existentialism is a Humanism. Sure. So he gives this example in this speech about a, a soldier in World War II. So this soldier has lost a, or, or this boy, we'll say that, a boy. This boy has lost a brother in World War II. Brother has died. He wants to go off and avenge his brother's death. He wants to join the military and go off and do this because he feels like it is the honorable thing to do for the memory of his brother. At the same time, he has a mother and the mother is aging. And the mother needs help and assistance in living. There's no one really to help her with that except her son, her boy. So he has this decision before him, right? Do I leave my mother, who is ailing, and go fight and, and for the honor of my brother and my country? Or do I stay home and care for my mother? Which is the morally right decision? And there isn't one. You know, this is the point. There are some of these decisions in our lives where, where that like neither choice is good. And so that's when Sartre says, you know, the, the ethic is in the choice itself. That's interesting. That makes sense. I, I think I, my virtue ethics bill is going off in my head, but <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, so <laughs> I think that 
I'm identifying kind of a central assumption that you're you're definitely prefacing about Kirk, that Kierkegaard has and these existentialists have, but that is a large assumption that we had free will. I feel like I I forgot to mention this in the the beginning of the episode, but I've been doing that reading group with um on on this topic too. So it seems like something like a it's it's very dependent on on free will because if you're not able to make your own choices and there's you can't judge the the ethical nature of of the deed i suppose like if if the if the mm-hmm. ethics is in the choice of the decision and you can't make your own decisions then it seems kind of pointless yeah again sartre it's funny we keep circling back to him so sartre really clarifies the idea that we do have free will. A couple of quotes here that that may be familiar. Uh, Man is condemned to be free because once thrown into the world, he is responsible for everything he does. There is no traced out path to lead man to his salvation. He must constantly invent his own path, but to invent it, he is free, responsible without excuse, and every hope lies within him. Yeah, so for the existentialist, we have free will. We are ultimately responsible. Mm, interesting. I, I heard it once. Uh, what was his name? Robert Solomon. Uh, it was a philosopher at UT. I had a great series on existentialism. It, it was called Existentialism: No Excuses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it it seems it seems definitely like you know there's there's no wiggle room in that because it seems kind of like the whole philosophy. This isn't this isn't a critique of existentialism. I think that Kierkegaard and um, Sartre and uh, de Beauvoir would agree with this. They'd be like, "Yeah, you know, um, there's free will," and and a lot of yeah. philo- a, ph- a lot of philosophies do this too. It's it's not unique to existentialism. And we will definitely do an episode like on specifically on existentialism in the future. I don't think we'll be able to escape it. <laughs> but by saying that, I'm negating my own free will. That's so. funny. <laughs> Well, let's talk about, uh, you know, in, in terms of the choice is the ethic. Let me talk about probably, I don't know if controversial is the right word, but the, but even just saying this phrase will, will pique people's uh, curiosity, I'm sure. Let's talk about Kierkegaard's theory of subjective truth, Uh-oh. which seems like a paradoxical <laughs> phrase to begin with, right? Yep. <laughs> so uh, I'll do my best to unpack this. This is a... Uh, I don't know if it's complicated, but uh, it, it may take a minute for it to take hold. Okay, so, and, and all this is, is in relation to what we were talking about earlier about the choice being the ethic. So according to Kierkegaard, the truths that really matter in our life are not objective. They're subjective. So your truth, as, as some people say, sometimes truth with a capital T for Kierkegaard is not even worth seeking uh, or may not even be able to be known. For him, what's most important is is the truths that are meaningful to an individual's life. So you and I, Andrew, we may have truths in our lives that are different from each other because as an individual, we are different people. So keep that in mind as I, as I continue to, to explain this. Now, I, I do want to point out, this is not some appeal to relativism, mm-hmm. Kierkegaard does not mean that uh, it doesn't matter what we think or what we believe. Uh, what he means is that the really important truths in life are personal truths. 
So again, let's go back to the thing he's talked about the most, and that was Christianity. For example, is Christianity true? Now, it's not a very good question, but, uh, <laughs> but, but, let, but let, let's use it. This is not a question that can academically or objectively be answered. It can't be reduced to like its, its smallest part. It's not Christianity or the existence of God is not something that can really be proved rationally, according to Kierkegaard and many other theistic philosophers as well. They say, you know, reason has its limits and there are some things that just can't be reasoned or proven objectively. Kierkegaard says it can only be known to the individual by the individual throwing themselves passionately and with sincerity into Christianity. And the answer to this and other similar questions can only be arrived at through faith. There'll be more to say about that in a second. So things we can know through reason or knowledge, knowledge, according to Kierkegaard, are really totally unimportant. <laughs> this may bother some people. But for instance, like 8 plus 4 is 12. Easy. Rational. Uh, we, can, we can arrive at that. It's it's easy. We can be absolutely certain of this because it's an example of reason, truth. But Kierkegaard would say, yeah, but is that something we include in our daily prayers? Is eight plus four equals twelve something that uh, that impacts our life in a meaningful way? Is it something that we will lie about and, and ponder over when we are dying? You know, oh my God, eight plus twelve. I mean, eight plus four is twelve. I can't believe it. You know, uh, no. He's like these types of truths are totally unimportant to the question of existence. So this is why he says personal truths is subjective truth. These are the types of truths that are meaningful. Truths that are arrived at rationally generally are not are, are not meaningful. That's rough. <laughs> it is. It is. I think something that you kind of mentioned is important to highlight is that I don't think that Kierkegaard is a relativist which I think is the easiest pseudo-criticism of this kind of idea. So when, when I was first thinking about this idea of subjective truth, I was thinking something like, this doesn't really make sense in a relativistic way. Because if there's no truth, that seems like a truth of itself, which I, I think that could be a criticism perhaps, but it's not something, I don't think Kierkegaard is saying something like, like you said, eight plus four does not equal 12. He's not going to say, you know, well, you know, to me, eight plus four does equal 12. But, uh, you know, to you, that might not like, I think there are some relativists who would try to argue something like that. But I think it's important to highlight the difference kind of with the subjective truth that Kierkegaard's thinking about. It seems almost like this is, is it's a subjective truth in terms of the way that someone is i guess is it kind of like a like the values that you're holding the way that you're living the things that you find like important to you that's the subjective nature of things yeah and that that truth is something specific to the individual that particular truth let's use a couple of different examples like outside of christianity although i'll circle back and say like Kierkegaard said that individuals have to throw themselves passionately into whatever it is they're trying to discern truth about, and his concern is Christianity. We can read books about Christianity. We can read other philosophers, 
C.S. Lewis, whatever, that have written about Christianity to try to rationally prove whether it's true or not. But but Kierkegaard says, I mean, it's all great information, but you'll never know that truth until you throw yourself passionately into it. So so, so let me let me set up a little scenario for you, Andrew. Right? Let's say that you did something really terrible to me. I don't know what that is, but uh, but Andrew, oh, I can't believe it. You have offended me so. Uh, so you've you've said uh, maybe you've said something false about me or something, and you've ruined my reputation, right? And, and it's caused me to to lose my job because you're you're angry about with me about something. But then some years go by, and you know you give me a call and you want to meet up for coffee so that you can like come clean about this situation. And you tell me what happened and, and why you did it and that you feel absolutely terrible all these years later. And I respond by saying, I forgive you. Here's the question. How can you know? How can you, how can I know that you actually forgave me? Yeah. Um, well, I guess I would kind of try to see how sincere the statement was, but mm-hmm. um, is Kierkegaard going to say that like, that I can not truly know that you are actually being sincere. Yeah, because because any indication that you might have that I'm sincere with my forgiveness would be outward. It would be something I said or the way I said it. It might be like body language that I'm using when I'm saying it. It might be the tone of voice I'm using when I'm saying it. But all of those things are outward. Can you ever truly know that I have forgiven you? I guess Kierkegaard would say no. I I can see this kind of flashback to what you were saying earlier with Christianity. He can't know that these people around him are actually Christians or not, nor would it be his responsibility, I suppose, to know. It's just like, you know, it's his kind of like you were saying, right? It's it seems like it's very individual, but Kind of like I was saying earlier, I don't, I don't know how to frame this objection that I'm having in my head, but it's something like the idea that we have no indication that there's no truth does not detract from the possibility that there is truth in itself, right? Like, it doesn't seem like a negation that truth actually, like a fundamental objective truth actually exists, it just seems like denying or creating the possibility that it does not exist. It's not a total negation, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's a a valid objection, but that's what I'm kind of sniffing around at. Well, you know, the subjective truths are truths that are existentially important for you to know. So, you know, with, with the forgiveness example, it's important, like, you called me years later to ask for forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Like it's existentially important for you to know that I have forgiven you. Mm-hmm. Now we have to put up with the anxiety, the absurdity, whatever of, of the fact that you can never truly know within my, within me that I have forgiven you. But this is why it becomes a, a, a question that you're intensely concerned with. Let, let me use a different example and, and see what you think. You can never know whether or not a person is in love with you, right? Or it doesn't even have to be romantic love. It could be friend love. It could be love from your parents. It's just something you have to believe or hope, right? There can be all kinds, let's say you're married. There could be all kinds of evidence that your spouse loves you, 
right? Through the way your spouse interacts with you, the way they touch you, the way they hold your hand, the way they look into your eyes, or maybe some of the things they do for you, like, you know, they, uh, they like doing nice things for you, all, all these, or certainly verbal, you know, they tell you all the time that they love you, but you can never really know that they love you. You have to believe or hope in that love. And every day is like bringing that love into being, right? That's a heavy burden, right? Same with the forgiveness example. You have to believe that I have forgiven you. And you have to believe, you have to bring that belief into reality within yourself. See, so, so Kierkegaard's point is like these types of things, love, forgiveness, faith in God, these are more important than like the, the sum of a triangle is 180 degrees, which is something that can objectively be known. Uh, you don't have to think about the laws of cause and effect or modes of perception or all that stuff uh, when you're in the middle of your first kiss, right? Uh, you're not thinking about those things. Kierkegaard said, if I'm capable of grasp- grasping God objectively, I do not believe. But precisely because I cannot do this, I must believe. If I wish to preserve myself in faith, I must constantly be intent upon holding fast the objective uncertainty so as to remain out upon the deep over 70,000 fathoms of water, still preserving my faith. So whether it's faith in God, whether it's faith in friendship, whether it's faith in forgiveness or whatever, it is a, well, to coin his term, a leap of faith. That's what I was just about to, to say. That makes sense. I think your your last example made a lot of sense to me. So, this is a quick question because I know we're running out of time, but what would, do you know what Kierkegaard would say if we don't make this leap? There seems to be a big emphasis on holding a belief to be true, even if it's kind of unknowable. So like in your example of saying, you know, we meet at the coffee shop years later and you forgive me and what happens at that point if I say, if, if I don't believe that you actually did forgive me and I just hold kind of my entire life, hold that against myself or something like that? Does that make sense? Yeah, like what's the consequences of yeah, that? Yeah, like it seems like Kierkegaard's saying you're going to live kind of a bad life or, or a, a life filled with kind of dread. Yeah, I mean, for him, it's the fact that you're not confronting these very difficult questions that is... Uh lessening the quality of your life. I see. Some might argue that, you know, engaging in these really difficult questions that there aren't any answers to makes your life worse. (laughs) (laughs) Ignorance is bliss, right? But, uh, but the reality is for, for some of these, what he called uh, personal truths, uh, there are no, there there is no objective way to prove them. Uh, And so we have to make peace with the fact that some things cannot be rationally proven, that that reason has a limit. And once we reach that, which is, you know, according to the existentialists, full of dread and anxiety and, and anguish, we have to make that leap, that leap of faith beyond, beyond reason. I know leap of faith will always get associated with the ideas of, of Christianity, but, but leap of faith in all kinds of things, leap of faith in like the example of the romantic partner, you have to believe that you believe into being that they love you because there's no way to prove it. That's pretty cool. So one last little question for you. Yeah. If someone is interested in learning more about Kierkegaard, where would you recommend they start? Ah, okay, good. For me, Kierkegaard's actually kind of a difficult philosopher to read. 
he's very engaging and intense, but I might not start with one of his primary works. I would probably start with uh, a biography. One of the ones I most recently read was titled uh, Philosopher of the Heart, The Restless Life of Soren Kierkegaard by, by Claire Carlyle. Uh, is a really wonderful overview of his life. And through that biography, she interweaves a bunch of his philosophy. So it's a very accessible way to get into Kierkegaard. His best known books and probably the most accessible books are Fear and Trembling, which is about Abraham and Isaac. Uh, another one that's very well known is Either Or, and another one, a really wonderful title, uh, Sickness Unto Death. Th- those are typically cited as his uh, best known and most widely read. All right, everybody. So come into the quote corner. All right, everybody, welcome to the quote corner. This week, it's going to be my quote. It's one of, by one of my favorite philosophers, Alistair McIntyre. He is a modern philosopher. I think he's still alive. Yeah, he's he's extremely old by now. He's he's 92 years old, according to the Google. And he's he's very interesting. He's I think he teaches at Notre Dame, but he's really interesting because he was a extremely Marxist philosopher. And then he kind of had this transition to, I guess, not entirely away from Marxism, but he he found um, his faith in Catholicism, um, and that kind of influences a lot of his later writing. So he's he's most famous for uh, writing a book when I guess he was quite young. I I don't know. I guess uh, I thought he was quite young, but now that I'm looking at how old he is, I guess he's not. But He's most famous for writing this groundbreaking work called After Virtue. Um, I'm looking up on Wikipedia right now, and it's saying that this is apparently one of the most um, important works in moral and political philosophy in the 20th century. So I, I've i read a few of his other books, but this is his most famous, so I thought um, I would bring him over today. He's a virtue ethicist, by the way, a, a big turn from what we were talking about today. Anyway, his quote is, we are so accustomed to classifying judgments, arguments, and deeds in terms of morality that we forget how relatively new the notion was in the culture of the Enlightenment. And that comes from After Virtue. So do you want me to talk about this uh, a little bit before you get into it, Mr. Parsons, or should I just pass this off to you? Well, I'd I'd like to, since you're familiar with the book, I would like to hear what the culture of the enlightenment was beforehand. I think this is best explained, I guess, with an example from my own, from my own learnings in philosophy. So one of my philosophy professors who I think he studied with McIntyre, we were discussing a work of Plato, uh, Plato's Republic. And I was like, you know, this sounds really cool and everything, right? Like we've kind of gone over it, but he, so I, I guess it's a piece of political philosophy, and he divides up the perfect city into three kind of groups. There's kind of the the soldiers, then there's the philosophical guardians who kind of rule, and then there's the the merchants. And I was saying, you know, yeah, this is pretty cool, but I kind of feel bad for the merchants because they're never going to be able to live a happy life. Doesn't really seem that fair, nor really will the the soldiers. So it's kind of sad that just the guardian class will will live in uh, in happiness alone. 
And so I was like, you know, that seems kind of to be a little criticism of mine that it doesn't really seem that fair to me. And so I asked him, you know, is this, is Plato's ideas really supposed to be of a a real city? Is this supposed to be some real city that he actually thinks can exist? Or is this something that's kind of internal? He said, you know, Plato probably thought this was a real city. It's like, dang, that seems very unfair. And he was like, you're thinking of this as a very post 20th century, post enlightenment idea of fairness and morality. So when you're thinking of it back then, they're going to be like, yeah, it seems totally fair that people are certain people will be able to live moral lives at the expense of others. So it kind of caught me thinking, you know, it's very true lately that we, we, we think of morality, we judge actions, deeds, kind of like what he says, and arguments based off of morality, and not really on the truth or impact of, of the arguments as a whole. And McIntyre seems to think this is a product of our post-enlightenment way of thinking that's kind of entirely based upon the individual. So I don't know if that example really explains the the context of the quote, but I think it's a it, it was a groundbreaking kind of time for me, and I think that's why I brought the quote here. Well, if I'm remembering right too, like one of the revolutionary things about the Enlightenment and Enlightenment thinking was the idea of, of rights based morality. Right. Which probably began with John Locke. Yeah, rights-based morality is a very individual uh, morality. Uh, Not saying it's wrong. There are certain rights, I believe, that every human being should have. But it does become very individual, right? Right. Versus the collective. And then so we view morality from that perspective. So so I get where McIntyre is coming from here. Yeah, I like that. Um, okay. Well, I think I know where you're going with this. How many stars are you going to give it? <laughs> I think I will give this a, I'm going to give it a 4.9. <laughs> Man, that's harsh. All right. <laughs> so close. Uh, I'm going to give this one a four. All right. Solid four. All right, everybody, that's it for us this week. Thank you so much for spending your valuable time with us today. We'd love it if you would leave a positive review and hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts. If you choose, if you think this was a good episode, it's your truth. So you'll know when new episodes drop and you can pass it on to any of your friends if you so choose. Yeah, have them passionately throw themselves into our podcast. Uh, Of course, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, If you'd like to tell us what you think of the show, have any questions that you'd like us to elaborate on or address in a future episode just let us know and email us at opendoorphilosophy at gmail.com you can follow all the philosophy on twitter and instagram we often write our posts while walking and our website at opendoorphilosophy.com where you can find many things about the show including our book lists all right thanks to kevin mcleod for the use of his music in our intro and outro thank you everyone for listening and we'll see you next time remember when your life is in need of some philosophy, the door is always open.